it is Sunday morning, September 20th, 2020. We're in our study of Romans 5 to 8 called The Reign of Life. We'll be looking at verses 5 to 8 of Romans 8. Now, I'm going to try to screen share with you guys and pull the handout up because it's much better to see the handout than me. And uh, so I'm going to, so if you're listening on a recording in Radioland subsequent to this, you need to find this handout. I'll send it to you if you ask me for it. It's very easily done. But hi, Melanie. Hey, Dory. So let's see if I can do this successfully. Uh, Give me a... Oh, wait. No, 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 no. Let me go back. I saw it. All right. Hold on. Hang in there, folks. There it is. Tell me if, you, if that's big for you. It, it is big? Good. Perfect. Thank you, Dory. So I'm going to minimize this little thing over here. Yeah, good. So you can hear me, I trust. You can see this nice handout, The Reign of Life. I realize, uh, beloved, since it's only posted Sunday morning, unless you had a printer at home, it might be a little difficult to both get the handout and see, uh, see the live stream at the same time. So here's the handout. Let's, um, let's pray and I'll invite you to do your mute on your little Zoom screen and we'll pray together. How good it is, Lord, to call upon your name and to express our trust in you. You are the object of our hope, our confidence, our heart's affection. You're our all in all, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you are building your church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Among other things, you build it by taking your word and planting it deep in the hearts of your people. And you transform our minds by the word of truth. Please do that this morning. Use these verses from the uh, pen and mind of the Apostle Paul to give us more and more the mind of Christ. What a glory to think your thoughts after you, to be delivered from lies and falsehood, to know what is true and to have our lives conform to it. What a glory, what a blessing. We often take that for granted. So thank you for the work of your spirit, teaching us, helping us, correcting us, challenging us, comforting us, convicting us. Come Holy Spirit, do these things for the glory of Jesus that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, amen. Welcome, everyone. I can't see you, but I am. So we're uh, hopefully all looking at the handout, The Reign of Life. Let's read verses 1 to 8, and we're going to focus on 5 to 8. There is, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son on the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. 
For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let's set these verses, particularly uh, verses 5 to 8, in context. Paul is essentially amplifying the meaning of verse 4 when he writes that those who are in union with Christ walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So he's reminded you that in verse 1, if you're in union with Christ, there's no condemnation. And he's saying that the law of the spirit of life has set you free from sin and death. And he gives this other descriptor in verse 4 that we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So he's going to tease out the meaning of that to some degree. Essentially, he's talking about the doctrine of definitive sanctification. If you know much about your theology, you you know that the word sanctification is used in the Bible typically to refer to that ongoing process of uh, continual transformation that goes on in us by the Holy Spirit into the image of Jesus. We are progressively being sanctified, made more and more like Christ, less and less like the Adam we were born in union with. But progressive sanctification begins with something called definitive sanctification, and that is when you're saved and set apart, sanctification, from the Greek word holy, hagias, when you are by faith uh, made in union with Jesus Christ, that's what we call definitive sanctification. And that then begins the process of progressive sanctification. So in a sense, <clears throat> uh, the beginning of chapter 8 is, is a referring to what has happened in definitive sanctification And now he's going to begin to tease out some of the aspects of our progressive sanctification, being more and more conformed to the image of Jesus, this wonderful work of God in us by his spirit. So you can put it this way. Now that I'm at peace with God, that harkens back to chapter 5, verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are living as those with nothing to prove, nothing to lose. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You you just couldn't be safer in this universe than being in union with Jesus. Nothing to prove. Christ is proving it all. Nothing to lose. Christ has secured us and he's keeping us secure for eternity. So that raises the question, how do I love the one who so loved me? Not to get God to love me. That's religion. But how do I respond to this magnificent work of Christ for me? How do I love him? When you realize what Jesus has done for you on the cross, what it means to be in union with Jesus, that's one of the first questions you ask. How do I love him? How do I respond? How do I obey him? How does the gospel frame my relationship to God and to others? Or to put it this way, now that I'm changed, how do I walk? That's the word that... uh, Paul often uses in the New Testament to refer to your conduct, speech, thought, and action in every aspect of your life. That's the Christian walk, how you conduct yourselves completely in everything. Or you could have put it this way, what is it that controls me now? So think of Ephesians 5.18. Don't be drunk with wine. That is dissipation. 
but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul is contrasting there two things that control you. Will you be under the control of alcohol, resulting in dissipation? Will you be under the control of the Holy Spirit, producing a life of peace and worship and love for others and obedience to God? Um, so now that I'm changed, how do I walk? It's, it's in a sense like reorienting your muscle memory. What, what's muscle memory? It means we still have an impulse to sin. Unfortunately, all the things we did in our former life in union with Adam are still with us. So there's this time in the past where in my office at work, I moved my trash can from the place it had been for a long time to a new location. I forget now why I moved it. I just determined I was going to move my trash can from point A to point B. Well, guess what? I continued to go to the former spot where my trash can was because of muscle memory. I was used to, I was in the habit, I was... It was ingrained in me when I'm ready to throw something away, boom. I turn right there to my trash can. Well, it's in a new spot now. So there's a sense in which sanctification is learning new muscle memory. And this is why Paul is using this phrase, we're not walking according to the flesh, the old way we did things, but according to the spirit. So point number two, Paul makes clear the essential difference between the regenerate and unregenerate life. And that's verse five, those who live according to the flesh how do they live? They set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit, those who are in union with Jesus Christ, they have a new heart. The Holy Spirit has changed them. The Holy Spirit is in them. They are partakers of the divine nature. Uh, what do they do? They set their mind on the things of the Spirit. So we know how to live based on what we are not of the flesh and what we are of the Spirit. And so Paul then contrasts these two fundamental orientations of your heart's affections. He says those according to the flesh set their minds on the flesh. Those according to the spirit set their mind on the things of the spirit. The mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the spirit is life. So when you see the mindset on the flesh is death, what does that bring to your mind in terms of biblical history? The mindset on the flesh is death. Does it recall Genesis 2.17, the threat God made to Adam that in the day you eat of it, you will die? And so there's the threat that upon disobedience, Adam and Eve would die spiritually. They would be severed in their vital life relationship with God, and they would eventually die physically as a result of that. Yes. So this is recalling spiritual death versus the life that we have through the risen Christ. If we're in union with Christ, his resurrection life is now the thing that defines who we are. We're no longer dead. We've been brought from death to life, from darkness to light, from self to Christ. He then says that the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. Uh, and the mindset on the, on the spirit is at peace with God. That means we have freedom to obey. When we're hostile to God, we don't have any ability to be subject to God's law, Paul says. And the mindset of the flesh cannot please God. It doesn't have the ability and it doesn't have the desire versus those who are according to the Spirit not only desire to obey God, although we don't do it perfectly, we have the ability now through the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
When you see these phrases, hostile to God, does not subject itself to the law of God, cannot please God, that's the mindset on the flesh, that may recall in your thinking what Paul wrote earlier in Romans 3, when he wrote in Romans 3, 9, what then? Are Jews any better off? No, not at all. We've already charged that all Jews and Greeks are under sin, right? Slaves to sin, born in union with Adam, born spiritually dead, born a slave to sin. They're all under sin. As it is written, then he quotes from Psalm 14, there's none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes, he says, summing this up in 3.18. So there's a picture, as it were, of being uh, of the flesh, hostile to God, unable to obey God, cannot please God. So there's the contrasts. Point three is simply showing you that these verses are pretty good descriptors of what uh, Christian theologians call the doctrine of total depravity. That's a little bit of a misnomer, total depravity, because when you hear Can that... Can you move it up? Sorry? Can you move up the... the picture of oh, the... Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I can. Ah, if I forget to do it, remind me again, honey. Thank you. So, total depravity. It sounds like you're as bad as you could be. And that's not what the doctrine of total depravity teaches. It actually teaches at least four things. You'll see them there with the dashes. Let me say that I think a really good uh, synonym for total depravity is the phrase radical corruption, radical corruption. Radical coming from the Latin radix, which means root, and radical corruption simply says that the root of who we are as human beings, there is corruption due to being dead in sin. What are the four components of total depravity typically defined by theologians? First of all, because of common grace, we are not as bad as we could be. God alone is the one keeping uh, indwelling sin from making us more wretched than we would be if left to ourselves completely. By common grace, we're not as bad as we could be. But because of this radical corruption, there's nothing in me that causes God to move towards me. When he looks at me, he sees nothing that endears him to me. All he sees is sin. Correspondingly, there's nothing in me that causes me to move towards God. I'm spiritually dead. As Paul is showing here in these verses, I'm hostile to God. I'm not able to obey God. I don't want to move towards God. There's a hostility there. And the fourth uh, component of total depravity is that sin affects all of the human constitution, our will, our heart, our emotions, and our minds. And I've got this Greek word here, nuetic, for you. It's from the Greek word nous, which means mind. And these verses Paul are writing show you what we call the noetic effects of sin, how sin affects our thinking. Paul's already alluded to that earlier in Romans 1, 21. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Left to ourselves, we will never reason our way to God. Our thinking, our reasoning, our worldview is not neutral. It's not objective. It's hostile to God. That's what Paul is saying here. That's what... He's describing in Romans 1. Another description of that, Ephesians 4.17. Paul
Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Why does Paul say don't walk that way? Because of muscle memory. You used to think a certain way before you were converted. Now you're converted. You have the Holy Spirit. It doesn't instantaneously change your thinking, your habits, your behaviors. This is what sanctification is. It's this lifelong process of changing the way you think so that your behavior changes, learning new muscle memory according to the power of the Holy Spirit, according to God's Word. Paul says, don't walk in the way you used to walk. And how did they walk? In the futility of their minds. That means in their thinking, they were going nowhere that was ultimately spiritually good. Futile. It's like running up against a brick wall. You're not going to get through it. Futile. And he goes on in 4.18, Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. So when it comes to spiritual understanding, the lights are out. They, they might as well be in a cave in the depth of the earth. They simply won't see anything ultimately of what's spiritually valuable, spiritually important. God needs to turn the lights on. God needs to rescue us, bring us out of the cave, into the light. God needs to give us a new heart. God needs to open our eyes. This is why in the, in the Bible, uh, spiritual death is pictured as blindness. You don't see deafness. You don't hear hardness of heart. So in this state, you're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. What is that hardness of heart? Is that when God comes knocking on the door of our hearts, knocking, 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 we are inside in a stupor, completely unwilling and unable to respond. Make sure you hit your mute button, beloved. Mute buttons. Thank you. And then he ends that part in Ephesians 4 and verse 19. They become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So our lives are definitely going in a certain direction, self-serving, sensual lives. Two examples of this from uh, so you, it raises the question, okay, Paul is contrasting the mindset on the spirit, is life and peace, the mindset on the flesh, is death, hostility towards God. What would uh, a life be, look like that was a mindset on the flesh? Here are two lists for you among many. You might recall uh, earlier in the study we had these long lists of sins. I'm just pulling two out of that long list. Galatians 5.19, the works of the flesh are evident. Or he might as well have said, the mindset on the flesh is evident. It shows itself up in sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. So this is a representative list, not an exhaustive list. Notice that these are often things, these are gifts God gives us that we abuse. And there's uh, in these lists often gobs and gobs of relational strife. The, the, we're made for relationship with each other. We're made to live in peace with each other. We're, we're made to enjoy one another. And when the mind is set on the flesh, relationships go south. They turn sour. Uh, he says, I warn you, as I often warn you, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Of course not. There's a mindset on the flesh. How could they? Another list is from Colossians 3.5. You'll be familiar with this from the 
memory work that Paul and Allison gave us a few weeks ago. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Synonym for the mindset on the flesh. What is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In other words, loving or desiring or wanting anything more than you want God. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And it should. God should judge these things. They're completely contrary to his heart, to his mind, to his character, to his agenda, to what he wants for human beings. He must judge them in his wrath. In these, you too once walked. Before you were converted, when you had your mind set on the flesh, you walked in them. When you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Why does he tell them to put them away? Because these are very present realities, muscle memory, spiritual muscle memory. If your instinct in your pre-converted life was to do thus and such in a certain situation, it's still your instinct. That doesn't stop the moment you're converted. It takes practice. It takes a reorientation. It takes prayer. It takes fellowship, accountability. It takes reading the Word of God, getting the Word of God into your thinking, transforming your thinking, as we're going to see in this very lesson. It says, in these you formerly walked when you lived in them, put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Notice how many of these sins have to do with the way we speak, the use of our words. Don't lie to one another, saying that you've put off the old self with its evil practices. Okay, all the muscle memory wants to wants to wants you to speak in that old way of speaking. No, no, no. That's that that's not becoming of a person whose mind is set on the spirit. So let's go to number four. What is the assumption here? The assumption is the war in you. Typo, sorry. The war in you is being fought on the turf of your heart, especially your thinking. This is why Paul says the mind set on the flesh is death, hostile to God, can obey God. The mind set on the spirit is life and peace. He is drawing attention to your thinking. So it raises the question, what goes on in the heart? The heart biblically is the seed of the whole person, your thoughts, your feelings, your affections, your will. All of those things are in the heart. So let's distinguish between thoughts, that is cognitions, ideas, longings, desires that you have about what is good for you, and feelings. Feelings tend to be windows in your heart about what you're demanding or fearing. So I've got a little diagram here for you that shows you uh, the relationship between your thoughts and your feelings. We tend to think that events cause us to feel a certain way. Right? So, so you're in a traffic jam on the beltway and you're trying to get somewhere on time, it's very important to you, and you're fuming. And you think the traffic jam is causing you to be angry. And actually it's not. What's causing you to be angry, your emotional consequence at this event, sitting in a traffic jam trying to get somewhere, be on time, is what you're telling yourself. So you have an event, A, I'm in a traffic jam. B is my belief system, how I am interpreting the meaning of that traffic jam. C is the emotional consequence. It is your belief system that is creating the emotion, not the event itself. 
because there are some people that get in a traffic jam and they don't care. They're cool as a cucumber. They have this attitude. Traffic jams are a way of life in suburban uh, Washington, D.C. Why would I expect there to be less cars on the Beltway when I'm driving on it, everybody else is driving on it? See, so, there, so it all depends on what you are telling yourself, your belief system, your interpretation of an event, that's what causes your feelings. Let me tease that out a little bit and show you the difference between feelings and goals. Two of the strongest emotions or feelings we have are anxiety and anger. What are they? Anxiety, classically speaking, is having a goal that is called into question. So let's suppose you're at the airport, you're waiting for a loved one to fly in, and there is a thunderstorm surrounding the airport with hail and lightning and 50-mile-an-hour winds, and the plane is beginning its final descent. How are you feeling? You're feeling anxious. Why? You have a goal to get my loved one safely on the ground that is being called into question by virtue of the crazy weather. You've heard that planes sometimes hit bad weather and they don't always make it to the ground. So you're feeling anxious. That anxiety identifies what your goal is. I want my loved one safely on the ground. I can't control that. That goal is being called into question. It's being threatened, so to speak. So that's why I have the two little question marks between you and your goal. Contrast that to the emotion of anger. What is anger? Anger is having a goal that's blocked. So let's suppose you've been waiting to see your loved one for a month, have been out of town, you can't wait to get them back, and they're flying into BWI, and you learn two hours before the flight that Southwest has canceled the flight. You're not getting your loved one back when you want to. How are you feeling? Angry. Why? You had a goal. Get my loved one back as soon as possible. Leave Daddy Y at 4 p.m. And that goal has now been blocked. <clears throat> so, what's the point? When you're feeling certain emotions, stop and ask yourself, what am I telling myself? What am I demanding? Do I have a specific goal that is either being called into question or frustrated, blocked, whatever. Examine your goal, as I say there on the handout. You are, the, and again, the stronger the emotion, the more your demand. I demand fill in the blank in order to be happy, fulfilled, safe, content. So if I demand to get somewhere within a reasonable amount of time and I hit a traffic jam, the stronger my demand, the more frustrated I am. And this is why people have different levels of emotion in different situations. They have different amounts of emotional energy invested in it. For some people, my wife, it's not so important that we hit it, that we get somewhere fast. It is for me. That's why she's not troubled by traffic jams, and I am. We have different demands, different levels of expectation, different ways of thinking about it. Thinking, thinking. That's the point. So, because I am convinced that that is what is necessary for my welfare, in other words, you're telling yourself, these are cognitions, it's what you're telling yourself is necessary for your welfare, 
That's why you have so much emotional energy attached to something. And I have here noticed the difference between goals and desires. It's just one way to parse the nomenclature. Think of a goal as something that's essential to your welfare versus a desire is something that you like, it would be nice to have, but it's not essential to your welfare. So I might desire to get somewhere in a reasonable amount of time without a traffic jam. That is not essential to my welfare. What is essential to my welfare? Getting there safely. So I should have a goal, I should be driven to drive safely, not crazy, regardless of how many cars are out there, that should be my goal. Drive safely, drive attentively, and, it's, and then in addition to that, it's a des I could have the desire to get there without an unreasonable delay, but that is not essential to my welfare. So that helps you tease out uh, some, some of the things that are going on in your thinking and in your emotions. Let's look a little bit more specifically at this phrase, set your mind on the things of the spirit. It raises the question, what are the things of the Spirit? One way to answer that is everything Paul's going to say that follows in chapter 8. The, what are the things of the Spirit? The truth, the work of Christ, our sonship, our standing in Jesus Christ. So in a sense, the things of the Spirit are everything else he's going to talk about in the rest of the chapter. We can go to some other biblical text and, um, and get some light on that as well. So let's look at Philippians 4.8. The context here is in verse 6 where Paul says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God uh, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The context is being anxious. What do you do about worry? He concludes this little section on worry with verse 8 of Philippians 4. When he writes, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Or as the New American Standard used to say, set your mind on these things. The reason that is a helpful antidote to anxiety or worry, again, the context, verse 6, be anxious for nothing. Literally, the word for anxiety in Greek means to be divided in your thinking. So what is worry? On the one hand, you say, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I guess I believe God's in control. But on the other, what if this bad thing happens? So worry is often divided thinking. So next time you're feeling anxious, ask yourself, what are the kinds of things I'm telling myself? Is there dividedness in my thinking between what's false and what's true, what's uncertain and what's provable? So let's tease out a couple of maxims related to your thinking based on this verse and some of the other things we've seen this morning. Thoughts have consequences. They give shape to our emotions and actions. That is beyond dispute, isn't it? If I'm telling myself, I shouldn't be inconvenienced by traffic jams. I must get where I want to go within a reasonable period of time. And I start to get angry and frustrated or anxious. What I'm telling myself has real consequences inside me. It shapes my emotions and my actions. Next maxim, you don't have to believe everything you tell yourself. 
we end up, because of muscle memory, because of thought memory, as a, so to speak, we end up telling ourselves lots of things that we think are true that aren't. So this is very liberating. You don't have to believe everything you're telling yourself. If you've got strong negative emotions, you might be telling yourself things you shouldn't be believing. Third maxim, thinking something doesn't make it true. You may think, right, sincerity is no indicator of what's true. Our culture tends to believe that. If you're sincere, that's all that counts, which is, of course, completely silly. I can, you can be sincerely mistaken about something. I can sincerely think I can drive the beltway at 150 miles an hour if I want to, and I'll be sincerely wrong. That will be a very dangerous way to drive the beltway. Thinking something doesn't make it true. Fourth maxim, you should assume that the default setting in your thinking often contains errors. Again, don't believe everything you tell yourself. Because of muscle memory, you still think things from your pre-conversion life that aren't necessarily true. You should assume that there's errors in your thinking. And of course, the only way to know what those errors are would be to subject them to the Word of God. And that would be the last maxim here. When your thoughts comport with reality, with the way things truly are, you'll have the peace of God. That is really the promise of this Philippians 4 passage. Um, don't be anxious. What do we want? Well, we don't want anxiety. We want peace. We want our hearts to be at rest. Someone said that joy is peace dancing. Peace is joy resting. That's what we want. When your thoughts comport with reality, with the way things are, you'll have the peace of God. That's the only basis on which God can offer us peace of mind and heart. So the biggest factor at the center of reality is God is in control. That is the fact to which we have to come back when we're anxious about events. God is in control. We really believe that. Really believe that. We'll have peace. We won't be anxious. How could we be? God's in control and God's good and God is for me. The truth then becomes a guard, a protector, a defender. Unleash the truth to attack strongholds of falsehood, the lies at the root of your worries. What kinds of thoughts are persisting at the root of your negative emotions? In all likelihood, the opposite of what Paul tells us to dwell on in verse 8. So if he tells us in verse 8 to dwell on that which is true, there's a lie at the root of your thinking, that is false. If we're to dwell on what's honorable, there's probably a lie at the root of your thinking that's dishonorable. If we're to dwell on what's just, obviously unjust. If we're to dwell on what's pure, there's possibly something impure at the root of our thinking. If he tells us to dwell on what's lovely, there's likely something displeasing or unlovely. You see, uh, you see, how, that, you see how that goes. I've got a few more verses here for you that stress the Bible's emphasis on the role of your thinking. The role of your thinking. One thing I'll say in my sermon this morning is what captures the imagination captures the life. What captures your heart captures the direction of your life. So here are some verses that uh, show you more of what we've been saying this morning, the, how critical your thinking is to your spiritual welfare, to walking in the power of the Spirit, to obeying God, to having peace.
etc. Colossians 3, again, we should be familiar with this based on uh, Paul Cornwall having us read Colossians 3 over and over and over again during our season of uh, his work of reconciliation among us, Colossians 3, 1 through 3. Uh, I think Dory taught you these verses, his study on these verses of a number of weeks ago. If then you've been raised up with Christ, what doctrine is that? Union with Christ. By faith we're united to Christ. If it's true of Christ, it's true of us. Christ has been raised, we've been raised. This is very much in parallel with the beginning of Romans 6. We died with him, we've been raised with him. If you've been raised with Christ, or since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. How do you seek the things above? Paul answers, verse 2. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you've died, your life is hidden with Christ and God. Again, union with Christ. Muscle memory, the person you were when you were alive in Adam, but dead to Christ, that person has died, but you still are going to tend to think that way. No, no, you now have a new life in Jesus Christ. We need to learn a new way to think, setting our minds on the things above, and that's when he goes right into contrasting the things of the flesh versus the things of the spirit. Romans 12, 1 through 3. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. This is actually one of those sweeping summary statements that you have throughout Romans. Romans 5. 1 was a summary of the first four chapters. Uh, uh, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 8. 1 summarizes what he's done from 1 to the end of 7. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And 12, 1 through 3, sort of summarize everything he's done from chapter 1 through the end of 11. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That raises the question, oh, what is it going to look like being a living sacrifice, giving myself completely over to God in view of the surpassing mercies that are mine in Christ, the love of God filling me, keeping me, never letting me go. I can't be separated from this love. What's it going to look like living a life that is a fundamentally a response of worship? What's that going to look like? For starters, verse 2, don't be conformed to this world. How do I, how do I not be conformed to this world? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. You're probably familiar with the ministry of R.C. Sproul. The, the, the title of his whole ministry was Renewing the Mind. That's, that, that was uh, the label he gave to his teaching ministry. It comes right from this verse. Don't be conformed to this world. How do I keep from being conformed to this world? What, what typifies this world? The mindset on the flesh. It's a worldview. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of processing. It's what the world believes. How do we get rescued from that? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Obviously, by what's true in God's word. Matthew 16, 23. This is Peter's uh, great confession of Jesus as Messiah at Caesarea Philippi. Matthew 6, 23, uh, remember how Jesus says, hey, Peter, you got it right. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven, the only reason you know me as Messiah is the Father revealed this to you. 
And then Jesus, whenever his person is revealed, he almost always annexes to that what he came to do. He said he's going to go be crucified and die and be raised on the third day. And Peter hears about a Messiah who's going to be crucified. And he says, that's not going to happen to you, Lord. And Jesus' response is, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, scandal on a stumbling block. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. That's what's satanic. Not setting one's mind on the things of God. The things of man. So whenever we're not setting our mind on the things of God, we ought to assume they're of the darkness. They're the devil. They're Satan. Boy, poor Peter. I mean, that's from going from the head of the class, A+, and two breaths later, being told you're almost an incarnation of the devil. Why? Where you're setting your mind. What you're thinking about. How you're processing events. Two more and then we're finished. John 8, 43. This is this uh, long, extensive dust-up Jesus has with the religious leaders. Um, probably some of the harshest things, hardest things that he says. He has to. And he raises the question, why do you not understand what I say? And that's a question he raises that he sees the need to answer for their benefit and for ours. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. That's going to set up two ways of thinking, two worldviews, if you will, the mindset on the flesh, the mindset on the spirit. You cannot hear my, bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. And that's important enough to know that Jesus gives this little descriptor of the devil. Really one of the most thorough and cogent and um, specific we have in the Bible. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. So isn't it interesting that the way Satan is labeled, described, named in the Bible has to do with what is true. He's the liar. He's opposed to the truth. He's the accuser. Satanus means accuser. What is accusation? Well, he accuses the brothers. He takes lies about who we are and tries to run us into the ground. He's the slanderer. What is slander? Saying things that aren't true about people. He's the deceiver. What is deception? It's creating a view of reality that doesn't comport with what is true. Isn't it interesting that the liar, the father of lies, the things he is called in Scripture all have to do with what is true or what, is, what isn't. And then the last one to call your attention to is the wonderful passage on humility that Paul and Allison taught us in a, in a Zoom class a few weeks ago. I guess it was uh, August 25th, I think. But regardless, Philippians 2.4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, raises the question, how do I do that? What's critical to that? What's the fundamental component to putting others' interests uh, at least ahead of mine? 
Paul answers this question, have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus. And then he details the humble mind of Christ who came uh, to, to serve and to lay down his life for us. So humility is a mindset. You can't look out for other people's interests. Think more highly of them than yourself, he says just before this, without a biblical mind, without the mind of Christ. We're out of time. I hope that's helpful. We're going to continue right on next week with the next few verses. We're going to plot our way, maybe three or four verses at a time, taking our time to get to the end of Romans 8. Let's pray. Thank you, our God, that you are the God of truth. There is no lie in you. There's nothing deceptive. You don't, do not slander or accuse. Unlike the liar, you've, you've come, Lord Jesus, to destroy his works, to expose him as the liar. We're so grateful for the light that we have in your word. We're so grateful that as we seek to change this muscle memory of an old way of thinking, we have the truth of your word. We have the Holy Spirit of truth. We have a new heart. We have a Savior who's contending with and for us alongside of us, seeing that we become more and more like him in thought, word, and deed. Thank you that the victory is ours in Christ. Give this victory of renewed mind, of transformed thinking, of biblical thinking to my brothers and sisters, that we would have the pleasure and glory of thinking your thoughts after you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That was so awesome. Thank you so much. I am grateful, Gail. You're welcome.